Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. I'm usually not a radio host. I'm a real estate agent with Halstead, but Rediscovering New York is not a program about real estate. It's about New York's extraordinary neighborhoods and about our amazing history. On most programs, we focus on a particular neighborhood, exploring not only its history, but its vibe, its energy, what makes the neighborhood special. And we do it through interviews with urban historians, preservationists, local business owners, artists, and interesting neighborhood personalities. But sometimes, like today, we host a show about an interesting part of the city or theme about New York and its history that's not about one particular neighborhood. And each show is available on archive and podcast the day after the show airs. And today I'm very pleased to host a special show with two Brooklynites about Brooklyn and a very part of Brooklyn's history. Um, we're going to start the first half of the show by celebrating Women's History Month with a guest who's been on the show before. Lucy Levine is a writer, historian, and New York City tour guide. She founded Archive on Parade, a historical tour and event company that takes New York's history out of the archives and into the streets. Lucy's collaborated with institutions including the Municipal Arts Society, the Historic Districts Council, of which I'm a member, the New York Public Library, I also have a card there, and the 92nd Street Y, as well as the St. Regis Hotel and Landmarks West. Lucy offers exciting tours, lectures, and community events all over town. She's also the public programs consultant at Friends of the Upper East Side Historic Districts and contributing history writer at Six Square Feet. Uh, this may be actually be the last official celebration of Women's History Month since it ended over the weekend, and here we are in April, but I thought it was a fitting uh, a coda to Women's History Month by having Lucy on to talk about the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn. Lucy, welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You're a native New Yorker, but you're not from Brooklyn. Uh, no, so I was born on the Upper West Side, so uh, being on this show, I am uh, in my old stomping grounds, but I do live in Brooklyn now. I live in Greenpoint. Since we're uh, going to be focusing on Brooklyn, we'll actually highlighting it today, uh, what had you moved from where we're sitting right now to Brooklyn and to Greenpoint? You know, I love Greenpoint. It really has a, a deeply neighborhood feel, and I feel uh, very at home and very connected to the neighborhood there. So uh, I just kind of felt myself, you know, wanting to be in that place, and so I moved there. And as far as your work, your work with Archive on Parade and your historical work, uh, how did you wind up going into? How did you wind up going into the business that you're in? So I have always loved history. I studied it in school, uh, and as a native New Yorker, the history of the city is in my heart and in my blood, and something that I really wanted uh, to dive very deeply into and to share with other people. Um, so I had been teaching, and one of the things I was allowed to do with my students was to take them on field trips around the city. Uh, and planning those field trips was really rewarding, and the kids seemed to really enjoy it. And so it gave me uh, the first taste of really um, using the city as almost like a classroom and, and seeing that it can be such a wonderful resource in terms of uh, just sharing this incredible history that we have all around us. Mm. When did you become interested in the history of the women's suffrage movement in, in New York and specifically in Brooklyn? Well, actually, uh, 2017 marked uh, the 100th anniversary of women being granted the right to vote in New York State. Of course, uh, nationally it's 1920, but in New York State it was 1917. Uh, and so in 2017, the Landmarks Preservation Commission uh, actually created a, a landmarks map related to uh, women's history and particularly suffrage landmarks. Uh, 
Uh, and I saw so many in Manhattan, and I saw just one or two in Brooklyn, and I thought, well, you know, I wonder what this history is. I wonder if there's more here. And I had the really wonderful experience uh, actually during Women's History Month when I was giving uh, a tour of uh, Brooklyn Heights around this topic uh, just in March, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one of the people on that tour was the guy from the Landmarks Preservation Commission who had created that map. Uh, and he said, I'm so excited to be on this tour because the only spots that I could put on the map uh, were ones that had actually been landmarked. So if you have found ones that have not yet been landmarked, that's really exciting for me. And so that's something that I uh, was able to do and really dive into. And so that's been really uh, exciting and rewarding. Mm. Great. Brooklyn, of course, was its own city. In fact, it was one of the largest cities in the United States with a vibrant port and, and vibrant industry until the consolidation of this New York we know today, which happened in 1898. Uh, the convention, the, the first women's rights, con the, women, the first women's suffrage convention, excuse me, took place in Seneca Falls, also in New York. New York is a mm -hmm. state of first and, uh, and first in, in a lot of kinds of freedoms. Um, were there any local organizations for women's suffrage before that 1848 convention? Uh, yes. So a lot of the women um, who were part of that 1848 convention uh, were themselves New Yorkers. And so um, the New York City Women's Suffrage Association uh, predates that convention. But the first one actually in Brooklyn, so the city of Brooklyn itself, um, was founded in 1868. Hmm. Um, so it was uh, founded after the Civil War. Yes. What, why would there have been, do you think, a delay between the, the Seneca Falls Convention and uh, something that just occurred to me and uh, the, the establishment of the New York City Women's Suffrage Organization and, and then in Brooklyn? I mean, Brooklyn itself was a vibrant place. It was one of the largest cities in the country. What, what might have contributed to, to taking 20 years for, for Brooklyn to, to put itself on the map? You know, I think that Brooklyn... Um, in its earliest iterations, right? This was the city of churches, right? This wasn't um, sort of a city of uh, commerce and hustle and bustle in the way that uh, New York City was itself. And so uh, I think that there wasn't the kind of ferment perhaps in Brooklyn. There was a lot more piety going on in Brooklyn, a lot more kind of um, sort of gentleness almost if you want. There wasn't the, the kind of uh, social ferment uh, at that time that was going on uh, in uh, in Manhattan, but uh, that social ferment is really going to pick up in Brooklyn when we get to um, the abolitionist movement, and that's well that's where we'll see really this incredible outpouring uh, in Brooklyn in terms of uh, civil rights and social rights, and so that movement that really takes root in Brooklyn in a really wonderful way uh, will then lead to. Uh, the women's rights movement becoming a really big part of the Brooklyn scene. Uh, in fact, many of the people who contributed to the creation of the very first Brooklyn Women's Suffrage Association um, were part of the abolitionist movement, and they talked about uh, throwing their weight and their interest and their uh, passion behind what they called um, a new outlet in the cause of justice. Uh, and that outlet uh, was women's rights, but that came on the heels of the abolitionist movement. So it makes sense to me in Brooklyn that um, it would have been after the Civil War that that kind of uh, organization would take place. And Brooklyn, of course, was uh, a very strong part of the abolitionist movement before the Civil War. Um, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's father was was the minister. I forgot the name of the church, but um, 
Uh, Harry Ward Beecher, is it? So her brother was Henry Ward Beecher. Okay. Yes, uh, and he was a preacher at the Plymouth Church in Brooklyn Heights, which still stands, uh, and that was absolutely um, part of the Underground Railroad, and he actually financed um, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. He actually... Um, provided the guns, they called them Beecher's Bibles, were the guns in that uh, uprising. And so that's a pretty extraordinary situation. And so he um, preached something called the gospel of love. And in fact, in his lifetime, uh, he became more famous for a a adultery scandal um, than anything else. So when we talk about the gospel of love, that's kind of funny to me. Um, But he actually would be the very first president of the American Women's Suffrage Association because it was 1869, and so who gets to be the president of the American Women's Suffrage Association? None other than a man who's Henry Ward Beecher. But uh, he was very deeply involved in both the abolitionist uh, and the women's movements, as were so many uh, people in Brooklyn, and particularly uh, preachers, because this was the idea of the equality of the soul. And so uh, when we think of the equality of the soul, right, everybody's equal in the eyes of God, so it made a lot of that members of the clergy uh, in Brooklyn would be part of these uh, two movements, especially because, as I said, Brooklyn is the city of churches, right? And so you have uh, an incredible sort of cadre of clergy members who are going to be involved. Mm. Of course, uh, uh, great movements like the women's suffrage movement don't get started and built without great people and great personalities to lead them. Uh, You mentioned uh, uh, preachers and people of the church, uh, talk a little bit about the Reverend Celia Burley and how she got started in the movement. Sure. So Celia Burley uh, was quite an extraordinary woman. She was the very first uh, female ordained Methodist preacher uh, in the United States. And she started out actually as a journalist in Brooklyn. Uh, and she will get involved uh, in the women's rights movement in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, She'll actually be the very first president uh, of the Brooklyn Women's Suffrage Association, which was the first uh, women's suffrage association founded in Brooklyn. So it was founded by her friend Anna C. Field uh, in 1868, and Anna C. Field found this in her home. She lived at uh, 158 Hicks Street in Brooklyn Heights. Uh, And she invites Celia Burley and Henry Ward Beecher and a whole host of other um, local progressive personalities to her home, and they found uh, this organization. And then the next year, in 1869, she's really going to bring suffrage to Brooklyn with a BAM. Uh, And by BAM, I literally mean the Brooklyn Academy of Music, which used to be uh, in Brooklyn Heights. Now it's in Fort Greene, but it used to be on Montague Street uh, in Brooklyn Heights. So she will host a marathon meeting, uh, which is... Wasn't it like all day or something? Yes. Absolutely all day. It goes from like 10 a.m. to 7 p.m. Um, and Celia Burley is there. And, um, you know, Susan B. Anthony is there. And, you know, anybody who we think of when we think of this movement, Lucy Stone, um, everybody is there to kind of give their blessing to this movement. Uh, and Celia Burley will get on stage uh, at that event and she will say that the women's movement uh, will allow women to be women in a broader sense than they had ever yet been uh, because they can be women with their whole bodies and their whole souls. Uh, And so this idea of the equality of the soul, thanks, is really part and parcel of what she does. But also, um, she combines not only sort of preaching, but also women's work. So uh, when we talk about sort of what we now would say like intersectionality of these things being more than just politics, but also work and also sexual freedom, all these things. Um, she had been a journalist, and so she starts something called Sororis, 
And she also got her, uh, was inspired by women journalists being kept out of a yes. city press club event honoring Charles Dickens. And she must have been pretty angry about that. And, Absolutely. Uh, so that's the sort of genesis of Sororis. There was a press club event, and it was said that if women were invited, uh, to honor Charles Dickens, that event would be promiscuous. And she said, oh, my, you know, come on, that's ridiculous. And so she comes home, that happened in Manhattan, and she comes home to Brooklyn, and she says to her friend Anna Seafield, we have to start something for working women in Brooklyn that is equivalent to what Sororis is, which was the first women's professional organization in the country. So the two of them together, they found uh, the Brooklyn Women's Club, uh, which is the second uh, women's professional organization in the country. So not only is she involved in the suffrage movement, but also, um, you know, organizing for for women's work and um, that kind of equality as well. Oh, and she worked with Anna Field as well. Yes. You? Yes. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we are going to continue our discussion with Lucy Levine and the history of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Me Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're We're your digital connectors. connectors. Woo woo! (laughs) (laughs) Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. are back with Lucy Levine, and you're tuned into Rediscovering New York on talkradio.nyc. Lucy, tell us a little bit about Archive on Parade and how people can find out more about, about your work. Sure. So Archive on Parade is a historical tour and event company, uh, and all of the tours and events are based on archival research. So uh, I offer walking tours, I offer lectures, I offer um, trivia events, you name it, I do it. Uh, I think of myself as a freelance nerd, uh, and it's quite a lot of fun. If you'd like to uh, learn more about when my next tours are uh, or you know any public events you'd like to attend, you can visit my website at uh, archiveonparade.com. That's A-R-C-H-I-V-E-O-N-P-A-R-A-D-E.com. Great. Um, getting back to some of the, the foot soldiers in the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn, um, also, wasn't the first suffrage organization by and for African men, African American women, also started in Brooklyn? Absolutely. Um, there were actually several 
um, women's suffrage organizations uh, founded by and for black women in Brooklyn. Um, unfortunately, when we think of, or in fact, when we're taught about uh, the women's suffrage movement uh, and sort of the early feminist movement, uh, we're taught almost exclusively about white women, uh, and that was never the case. Uh, there were always African-American women uh, in that struggle, uh, and particularly in Brooklyn. So. I was talking before about churches. Now, the old Bridge Street Church uh, in what's now called downtown Brooklyn, uh, funnily enough, it's now owned by NYU, but because uh, <laughs> they own everything, right? But before it was. Like a lot of real estate in the city that they, that they own. <laughs> yes, indeed. But before it was owned by NYU, um, it was really the center of uh, black Brooklyn uh, during and after the Civil War. And in fact, uh, when the. Emancipation Proclamation was issued, uh, a copy of it was read on the steps of the Old Bridge Street Church, um, and people like Frederick Douglass uh, preached there, so it was really um, a very, very, very sort of potent uh, place in uh, African-American history in Brooklyn, and one of uh, the parishioners there, in fact two, um, were the Smith sisters. So there was Sarah Smith Garnett, uh, and there was Susan Smith McKinney Stewart. So Sarah Smith Garnett uh, was the first uh, African-American woman to found uh, a black women's suffrage organization. Uh, it was the Equal Suffrage League of Brooklyn. Uh, she founded it in the late 1880s, but she was not only a pioneer in terms of women's suffrage, she was also a pioneer in terms of education. So she was actually the very first um, black woman to be a principal in the uh, Brooklyn public school system. Um, and her sister was also a trailblazer. So Susan Smith McKinney Stewart uh, was the very first black female physician uh, in New York City. And I mention her because she actually was the organist at the church. So these two women were deeply involved in this church. Uh, in fact, Sarah Smith Garnett is buried there. Uh, but both of the sisters come from an incredibly trailblazing family as well. They were um, born and raised in Weeksville, which um, was the second largest uh, free black community in antebellum America. And it was founded, one of the founders, in fact, uh, was there. Where was Weeksville? Was it in uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn? Where? It was in Brooklyn, yeah. It was uh, on what is now sort of the um, Crown Heights Bedstuy border. Um, but it was founded by uh, free black landowners, uh, one of which was their father, Sylvia Smith. Um, and their goal in the 1830s was uh, as... Uh, free black entrepreneurs was to own land because if you were a free black person in the north um, you could only vote if you owned land you had a $250 uh, land owning requirement which white which white men did not have but um, so as black landowners they understood that if they were going to engage in full citizenship they had to own land because they had to be able to vote so this sort of impetus on voting on having that kind of political uh, equal citizenship was something you know, that the Smith sisters really grew up with uh, and that they brought the fight to the women's suffrage movement, which is really quite moving and quite amazing. You know, I wonder if Brooklyn was more progressive toward the end of the 19th century. A, an African-American female principal is not something I would have expected even in the New York City cool, uh, school, in the New York City school system, which included Manhattan and then later part of the Southern Bronx. Um, so three cheers to Brooklyn. We, uh, we paved the way with a lot of things. Um, and then we also had Victoria Earl Matthews, who mm. was very prominent in the, in the movement, too. Absolutely. So Victoria Earl Matthews uh, was an extraordinary woman. So she 
um, actually was born into slavery, and then she was uh, a graduate of Howard University, uh, and she was a writer uh, and a speaker, um, and she gave lecture tours, and uh, she gave lectures, she went on tour and gave lectures, and one of those lectures uh, was The Awakening of the Afro-American Woman, uh, and we talk a lot uh, in sort of the women's movement about something like consciousness raising, which a lot of people think is a 1960s thing, is a second wave feminism thing, you know, coming out of uh, the 60s and 70s. And in fact, no, right? You know, who starts it? It's 19th century black women, right? <laughs> so um, what's so wonderful about history is that we get to um, learn about people who make our narratives richer and wider, you know? And so when we get to learn about these people, we get to understand that, you know, there's so much more than we understand. So we can think about consciousness raising now as a 19th century sort of African-American experience and not just, let's say, a 20th century like white women's experience. And I think that that's really uh, quite special. But after uh, Victoria Earl Matthews does that, um, she goes on to do a um, great number of other things too. So she is also um, the founder of the White Rose Mission, uh, which was at the time that it existed, it existed uh, in Manhattan, not Brooklyn, uh, on 86th Street, and it was called the Home for Working Class Negro Girls. So it was this idea, again, of not only political equality, but also kind of uh, social uh, and economic equality. So again, this idea of intersectionality really coming into play here, that what these women understood was if they were going to live as full citizens, as full people, um, they needed equality in, in every aspect of their lives, and they really fought for it. What did Maria Coles Perkins Lawton do in the movement in Brooklyn? She also went to Howard University. Mm-hmm. She did. I didn't even know that Howard University admitted women back in the <laughs> late part of the 19th century. So Maria Coles Perkins Lawton uh, is a really interesting figure. Uh, because she was of mixed-race heritage, and so she was able to pass in a lot of ways. Uh, and we spoke about uh, others in the movement who were writers, uh, and she was as well. And so she wrote for a number of publications in Brooklyn, uh, both the black and white press. And what she was able to do was really take on the white press, uh, particularly the Brooklyn Eagle, and say, you know, the way that you're writing about the African-American community here isn't appropriate, and there there was a situation in which the Brooklyn Eagle really kind of took her at her word and said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll change some of this verbiage, which is a, a sort of stunning victory that she had there. Um, but beyond that, she actually goes uh, sort of beyond the local level to the national level, and she becomes... Um, a delegate at the 1924 Republican Convention, because, of course, at that time, the Republican Party was the party of Lincoln. uh, And so uh, black voters, uh, really before the 1960s, um, more often than not voted uh, for Republican candidates. And so her role uh, in 1924 was to organize black women voters for the the Republican Party. And that was the year that Calvin Coolidge was uh, elected. Indeed. Uh, in, in fact, she endorsed Calvin Coolidge, didn't she? She did, right. yes, at the Republican National Convention, absolutely. Yes, I remember it well. Not really, <laughs> wasn't, uh, not that old. <laughs> um, Brooklyn also has a prominent history in the women's uh, equality movement in that the first women graduates of NYU Law School were also from Brooklyn. Absolutely. Uh, so there is a woman named Cornelia K. Hood who was known as the Brooklyn Portia. Now, she uh, is so kind of 
written out of history that when I when I do this as a walking tour, I, I normally have photographs of what photographs, no, but um, images of all of these women. Uh, and I could not find an image of her anywhere, not in the Brooklyn Eagle, not anywhere. Um, and what's so interesting is that the home that she lived in uh, was 6264 Montague Street. And there is a plaque on that building, but not for her. The plaque is for Arthur Miller. He also lived there. And Obviously, he deserves a plaque. He's one of the finest American dramatists to ever live. Uh, I would never dispute that he should get a plaque. But the point is that she doesn't get one, right? And she was really a stunning figure. So she uh, was the valedictorian of the very first women's law class. Now, NYU Law School was the very first law school in the country to allow women to study law. So the women's law class was inaugurated in 1890. Um, and just to put that year in perspective, so Harvard Law School did not admit women until 1950. So this was quite extraordinary. Well, that's Boston, and we're in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, to, uh, but to take be that fair, Red Sox though, but I got to, you know, I got to say it, though, because Columbia University uh, didn't allow women until about 1943. Uh, the dean of Columbia Law once said, um, women will study law over my dead body. And he died. And women literally walked in over his dead body. Huh. <laughs> so to NYU Law School, which I think is a fun <laughs> little anecdote. But anyway, so... Um, Cornelia K. Hood, uh, so again, she is the uh, valedictorian of the women's law class. And the women's law class initially uh, was not part of NYU law. So for that first year, it was a certificate class. And then in 1891, uh, if you earned that certificate, then you could matriculate at NYU law as a woman. And the very first women to graduate with JDs uh, graduated in 1893. And, and she was one of them. But in her uh, women's law class valedictory speech, um, which she called Why I Study Law, she said that um, the law as it stands doesn't privilege women in the same way that it does men. And so if we are going to uh, have equality under the law, uh, then it's up to us to lift ourselves up. Uh, and to do that, um, legal minds among ourselves will be indispensable. So her point was that not only was she studying for herself, but also uh, for other women around her. Hmm. And Emily Warren Roebling, who actually completed the, uh, <laughs> the, the management of the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, was also in that class, wasn't she? Uh, so she was not in that class. She graduated a few years later, but she did absolutely graduate uh, from NYU Law School, which mm. is um, such an interesting sort of coda to her life. She died very young. She had stomach cancer and she died very young, but not before she literally finished the Brooklyn Bridge and graduated from NYU Law School. So, you know, what people can achieve in their lifetimes, I think, is, mm. is so special to think about. But one thing that she did say that was quite hilarious uh, she wrote to her son after the Brooklyn Bridge opened, and she said, if it wasn't for me, the name Roebling would never be associated with the Brooklyn Bridge. Good thing I have more civil engineering understanding than any two engineers put together, civil or uncivil. And I'm like, mic drop, girl. <laughs> well, in the, the short time we have left, Lucy, I uh, want to move to, to uh, a little bit more colorful character in the women's rights movement. Uh, Lucy Burns, she got involved with Emmeline Pankhurst in London and the Women's Social Political Union, uh, which in Britain at the time was regarded as a little bit more militant than some of the, than some of the suffrage organizations here in the States. Absolutely. So Lucy Burns uh, has the designation of being the most jailed person uh, in the women's suffrage movement. So she went to jail more times uh, than anybody else. Um, and she was quite uh, an interesting figure. In fact, she the first time she went to jail, she did so... Uh, 
working in England with Emmeline Pankhurst, as you said, and there's a situation in which uh, she actually meets Winston Churchill because she crashes a dinner party that he's at, uh, and she says, Winston Churchill, you know, how can you eat while women are in jail? And next thing you know, she's in jail. Um, but yeah, she's an incredible woman. She begins her life in Brooklyn. She was a really a lifelong Brooklynite. So she grew up in Brooklyn, and then she taught in Brooklyn, too, at Erasmus Hall High School. Uh, and then she continued her own education in England, which is how she got involved um, in the Women's Social and Political Union. Uh, and while she's there, um, she meets Alice Paul. So Alice Paul and Lucy Burns are kind of like um, Elizabeth uh, Katie Stanton and Susan B. Anthony 2.0. So they're the next generation. They're going to come back to the United States in 1912 and found the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage, which in 1916 became the National Women's Party. Uh, and the National Women's Party was a lot more militant uh, than um, the women's movement in the United States had been up to that time, because they're really taking this idea from the British. Um, and they actually create what's called the very first March on Washington. It was the first time uh, that a procession of uh, protesters uh, made their way up the National Mall. And it was the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. It's actually led by another Brooklynite, uh, Inez Mulholland, uh, who was just amazing. She's kind of the um, Joan of Arc of the suffrage movement and her rallying cries, Mr. Wilson, how long will women wait for liberty? And, and you know, 5,000 women marching behind her, and it's quite a moving uh, situation. Uh, and I'm Ms. Mulholland, who is also a Vassar graduate. In full disclosure, I also am a Vassar graduate. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, Lucy. Thank you so much for coming back to Rediscovering New York. Our first guest has been Lucy Levine founder and owner of Archive on Parade. Thank you so much. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will talk with our second guest, Michelle Young of Untapped Cities. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Welcome back, everyone. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Rediscovering New York is a show about neighborhoods and the myriad textures of New York. 
We're not a show about the business of real estate, though, uh, but there is a good one. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with my colleague at Halstead, Vince Rocco. Rocco, pardon me, Vince. It airs on Tuesday mornings live at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, we're Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. Surprise, surprise at that, at that handle. And also follow me on Instagram where my handle is jeffgoodmannyc. If you have comments or questions or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list, you can email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. And one other note before we get to our second guest, when I'm not hosting the show, I'm a real estate broker in our amazing city. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you'd like to see how I can help you with your real estate needs, you can reach me at 646-306-4761 or jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Well, my next guest is Michelle Young. Michelle is, I met Michelle at an event for her show, for her company, Untapped Cities, at the New York Public Library, when she published the first edition of the book we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Michelle is the founder of Untapped Cities. It's a web magazine about urban discovery and exploration. Michelle is a graduate of Harvard College in the history of art and architecture and holds a master's degree in urban planning from Columbia University's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation, where she is an adjunct professor of architecture. Michelle and her husband, Augustin Pasquet, are authors of New York, Hidden Bars and Restaurants, for Jongles Publishing, and Broadway, published by Arcadia. She lives with Augustin and their daughter in Brooklyn, and they're about to come out with a second edition of Secret Brooklyn, and it's my pleasure to welcome Michelle Young to Rediscover New York. Michelle, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. You're not from New York originally, are you? I'm from Long Island, Okay, so not well, from I'm New sorry. York you are City. from New York. That is New York. I apologize. <laughs> I thought you were, just, you were not from the metropolitan area. Um, and now you live in Crown Heights. Mm -hmm. What other places in the city have you lived? I lived at uh, Lincoln Center, right near here. I also lived in Battery Park. And then uh, a little over, about three and a half years ago, I moved to Crown Heights. What took you to Crown Heights? You know, this is usually a show about neighborhoods, so I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly interested in what draws people to certain neighborhoods. Yeah, completely. So um, the reason I came into New York City when I was younger was I was uh, training to be a classical cellist at Juilliard. And so starting when I was 11, my family and I came here every weekend. Uh, and they bought a place uh, right on Lincoln Center in 94. And so um, after college and I moved back to New York to work in fashion, uh, at some point I lived in that apartment as well. And so I felt that I had seen the full life cycle of a neighborhood um, from when um, it had been post-urban renewal and people made fun of my parents for buying an apartment on the Upper West Side. Uh, <laughs> and um, They and must then, be ruining that, <laughs> making fun of anyone for buying an apartment on the Upper West and Side. And then it, it became later in the 90s, late 90s, 2000s, uh, full of amenities and new businesses and... Um, a lot of things moved in. And so um, I think at that point, uh, 2015, my husband and I, first we wanted to buy a place. So Upper West Side was then unaffordable. And um, I think we were looking for uh, a true neighborhood feel in the way, you know, I think a lot of New York City was in the past. So we were looking for um, low scale buildings, um, local small businesses that were still thriving, um, this kind of this kind of uh, aspect, and um, still with historical um, districts. And so uh, for me right now, Crown Heights has it all, uh, and we love living there. Oh, great. Well, I have a similar story. I lived in the East Village, and uh, when my partner and I just now my husband decided to move in, uh, uh, we decided what was affordable but also nice, and we uh, moved from the East Village and went up to East Harlem where we live today. Oh, yeah. 
Uh, when did you start Untapped Cities? Yeah, so 2009. Actually, so in June, we will be celebrating our 10-year anniversary of the first article, uh, which I'm excited about because I feel like the more we do this, the fewer publishers are out there, unfortunately. And so um, that's pretty exciting. I mean, as a business, it's been a, it, we formed it in 2012, but I started writing and putting content up there in 2009. And your first edition of Secret Brooklyn came out a little more than two years ago. Uh, what was uh, what were the inspirations for you and Augustin to to write Secret Brooklyn? Yeah, uh, I think moving there was a big one. Uh, it was a great way for us to explore the borough that we had just moved to. We obviously knew some bunch of things about it from writing articles on Untapped, etc. But uh, living there was a different thing. So it really got us motivated to spend every weekend exploring somewhere new. We would actually grab uh, our friends and say, hey, this weekend we're going to this place. Who wants to come? Um, and so we learned a lot about Brooklyn just by doing this. Hmm. And I'm looking at uh, the first edition of Secret Brooklyn right now. The second one is about to come off the presses, so I can't actually hold it and touch it <laughs> and smell it. Uh, but it's published by John Glees Publishing. And uh, where is it available? Uh, yeah, so you can buy it on Amazon, uh -huh. I guess, where everyone buys their books. Uh, but we're doing a book party at the Montauk Club, which is a location, a new location in this edition, on April 25th. And uh, believe you me, I would be there, but uh, my condo board is meeting that night and uh, responsibility calls. Um, what was the motivation for you to publish the second edition of the book? Um, I guess sales were good. So the publisher asked us to uh, write a new edition and to add a bunch of new places and also remove things that sadly may have closed. Uh, and I noticed there were, although there were a lot of similar uh, locations in the second edition, I had a, uh, an advanced copy, everyone, uh, full disclosure here. Uh, there are some uh, uh, places in the second edition that weren't covered in the first. Yeah, so we have uh, maybe at least 15 new locations. Um, should I talk about some of my favorite ones? Absolutely, because okay. my next question is going to be, <laughs> now let's get into the meat of the tofu of this. What are your favorite secrets of Brooklyn? Yeah. Where are they? What are they? What inspired <laughs> you to put them in this book? Great. So I would say my personal favorites always fall into one of three categories. One is truly places that are off limits. I think that falls into what I do for Untapped Cities. It's a, that's the real passion. Um, but I also love places that are hidden in plain sight that you will miss uh, just walking by at, or places that have a really great personal story uh, from someone that's running it. So in terms of the new places we've added, um, I really love the Knickerbocker Field Club in Flatbush. It's actually a very old tennis club that used to be part of, um, actually it sits on a place called Tennis Court, which is pretty hilarious. And that's is that the of, name of the street? Tennis that's the name of the street, and that's court, how I yeah. first came across it. I said, that's so funny, we should have an entry about Tennis Court and the pun. And then I realized at the end of Tennis Court is an amazing old uh, tennis club. Uh, and um, the whole area used to be kind of like the rest of Flatbush, low-rise, single-family homes, and that area got redeveloped. And so this is the only remnant of that original neighborhood that used to be in this spot, and that tennis club was in that neighborhood. So now it's surrounded by a subway line, an elevated subway line, uh, very tall um, residential buildings. Where in Flatbush is it? I went to Midwood High School, which is actually in Flatbush. It's not in Midwood, but uh, if it's sudden... It's right near Albemarle Court. Uh-huh. Uh, sorry, Albemarle Terrace. So that's a historical district. So it's actually a great thing that you can like walk right between the two and, and check both out. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other favorite parts of Secret Brooklyn that, that, yeah. that really that um, you love and that, and that inspired yeah, you? Yeah, I mean, in the first edition, uh, we tell the story of the Park Slope plane crash. 
that happened in early 1960s. Um, that's has kind of been forgotten in today's history of New York, but two planes literally crashed over Staten Island, and one flew over Prospect Park and crashed in the intersection of 7th Avenue. And, and that was the place. jet. There was, it was actually a United yeah. Airlines jet and yeah. uh, uh, a propeller plane that crashed, and that crashed in Staten Island, but the pilot tried to land in, in, in the park. In the park, and... Um, and so, I mean, it is a sad story. Everyone died on that plane. Uh, one boy survived and was taken to the hospital, and he died the next day. But what we really cover in this book is that um, some of the remnants of that crash actually are still there, if you know how to look for them. You know, I used to live in the slope, and when I lived in the slope in the 90s, uh, uh, there was a building on the corner that was still an empty lot. The funeral parlor had been reconstructed in, like, you know, horrendous 60s architecture. Sorry, purveyors of the funeral services. I don't like the building very much. And have since been built up that, that the real estate has gotten valuable. But that's fascinating to hear that there are still remnants of that plane. Where, where yeah. So um, the first thing you can see right on the street is that there are two twin buildings uh, and one of them is missing its cornice, the top part of the building. And that's because the plane uh, literally clipped that um, part of the building and it just was never uh, redone. And you can see brickwork that's been patched up. Uh, but actually, we were going to s- photograph this place on, I think, the coldest day in New York I have ever experienced. We were walking around Park Slope and having to like duck into cafes to warm up. And so there was nobody on the street. And so we were photographing this, and um, a man came by. And he said, do you know what you're taking a picture of? And we said, yes, yes, Park Slope plane crash. Um, and he paused and looked at us and said, oh, you know what this is? And he, he looks at uh, who he was with and says, should I show them the piece de resistance? And he said, all right, follow me. And we, we blindly followed him into his apartment. <laughs> and uh, in the back, uh, well, in his apartment, he had some pieces of the plane. So, um, they, so part of the wreckage actually yeah, was picked and up. Yeah, and in the backyard, well. he had part of the wing. Um, and he's actually uh, an artist in Brooklyn named Stephen Keltner. And uh, he, when he first moved to Park Slope, uh, the plane had already crashed. But uh, right down the street was a church that had burned down. And for many years, they were just parts of the plane and other things back there. And so over the years, he had salvaged some pieces um, and had the gate uh, on his apartment moved from the fencing Mm. at the church. Uh, You know, I heard about that. I just didn't know where it was. And it's kind of... not ironic, but but interesting that you went on a very cold day because the crash was on an incredibly snowy day, and pictures from the time show snowbanks and and just you know and yeah, actually the boy landed on the snowbank, which is why he initially survived. Um, you know, we talked about the the history of the of the women's suffrage movement in Brooklyn, and also uh, the uh, that there were abolitionists who helped start the movement. Some of the secrets in your in your book are actually uh, places uh, uh, that hid people on the Underground Railroad. Yes, uh, those are some of my favorite stories about New York, um, and actually it has become quite popular with the show and the book, Underground Railroad, etc. Um, one of those places that we, uh, we really like is called The Lot House. It's down in Marine Park, um, one of the oldest houses in New York City, uh, and is a historic house. And uh, inside is a closet that um, has a secondary little door, and it's actually where they would hide um, runaway slaves um, going north. And so after that, they would go to Weeksville, which we mentioned in the previous segment, um, and then further north from there. Um, and then some of the churches in Brooklyn Heights have an abolitionist history. And so um, there's a lot of stuff in Brooklyn connected to that. Wow. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our fascinating conversation with Michelle Young, one of the authors of Secret Brooklyn. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 
The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com Welcome back, everyone. We are here at Rediscovering New York with our guest, Michelle Young of Untapped Cities. Uh, right before we get back to Michelle, though, I want to uh, talk about something and talk about Brooklyn history. Uh, there's an interesting new play that's going to be on in Brooklyn at the end of the month. It's called Quezon. It's uh, by Evan Shaw. It's set in the year 1870. It's a six-scene play that gives us a glimpse into one of the submerged compression chambers used for constructing the concrete foundations of the Brooklyn Bridge. Uh, that was the first time that actually people got the bends. Uh, people actually were under a lot of pressure, and they dug to, to, to build the, the towers of the bridge. The play focuses on the relationships between the men who braved the harsh working conditions. Quezon uh, addresses themes of friendship, American socioculturalism, and duty. It's going to be playing from April 19th through the 27th at Patchworks in Bushwick, which we'll also be covering on a future show. Uh, and not surprisingly, given that this show is about Brooklyn, I'm going to be going on April 26th. So if anyone wants to go on the 26th, I will see you at the theater. Um, Michelle, tell us a little bit about Untapped Cities and about uh, sure. what you do and the services you offer. Yeah, so Untapped Cities is a web magazine about urban discovery and also a tour company. So um, you can either read the many articles we publish a day, which uh, we aim to surprise even the most native storied New Yorkers uh, about New York, or you can experience um, places that are off limits to the public usually, or discover the secrets of famous places on our tours. And then we also have a membership program called Untapped Cities Insiders, and these are for the most hardcore New Yorkers who really want to go off limits or meet the people that are really behind um, how New York ticks. In full disclosure, I'm a customer of Untapped Cities. <laughs> I am an insider and uh, uh, am pleased to go on the uh, Events that Untapped City hosts for insiders. Insiders get special access, by the way, everyone. So I uh, <laughs> encourage you to go on untappedcities.com and, and join up. Um, going back to some of the old secrets, uh, we talked about Underground Railroad. Actually, the oldest subway tunnel in the world is in Brooklyn, isn't it? Yes. Um, for many years, you could take a tour, uh, and basically a man named Bob Diamond would lead you down a manhole right in front of Trader Joe's on Court Street, 
Um, and he had actually pretty much self-excavated uh, this tunnel, and he had believed that there was, um, first of all, that the tunnel was there, and second, that there is a locomotive hidden behind a wall um, that may be um, very historically significant. Um, one of my biggest re New York City regrets is that um, I was supposed to go on that tour in my mid-20s, and I was in a rock band here, and uh, went out way too late on a Friday night with my band and performing and stuff, and the next morning just really couldn't muster the trip and um, said, there's going to be plenty more opportunities to go on this, and then he was shut down by the city, and so I've never actually been down there. Oh, well, I, I'm surprised to hear that there was a manhole cover. You know, it reminds me of one time in the 70s before lots of people went over the Brooklyn Bridge, there was a trap door. Where if you opened the trap door, there was a ladder that went down to the lower part of the bridge, but you could actually fall oh. down to the river. And I've been up there oh, since, and they, they've nailed it shut, so you can't do that anymore. <laughs> Um, moving a little old, uh, longer-term history in Brooklyn, there are a couple of uh, secrets, uh, actually going back to the Revolutionary War. Uh, I know that uh, a lot of the battles were fought, were fought in what's now Prospect Park and Gowanus, mm -hmm. but there's actually a Revolutionary War history in your neighborhood of Crown Heights, the Clove Road. Yes. Um, it's, it's a very tiny street in South Crown Heights off of Empire Boulevard, and it's so small that the Google Street View camera just decided it just didn't need to go down it. So if you go explore it on Google Street View, you actually can't you know, see that. But um, it's got a bunch of the original cobblestone. Um, and the um, I believe it's Washington's troops. Actually, not remember if it's Washington or, or the British side. But anyway, it, um, they marched through there. And uh, that little road is still extant. Oh, I'm going to have to check it out. I've never been there. Surprisingly. Well, maybe not so surprisingly. I don't know. I haven't been everywhere in it's, the city. Well, yeah. I mean, basically, there's the backyard of a supermarket, so it's pretty uh, forgotten, but nice to see. And secret. <laughs> and secret, for sure. It may be a bit notorious, which is uh, <laughs> always fun. Uh, and then we also have the Martyrs Monument. What you know, uh, More people died in the... More people died during the Revolutionary War on these horrible prison ships. Do you want to talk about those on the Martyrs Monument in Fort Greene Park? Yeah. Um, so backstory of where I originally came from is Setauket, Long Island, uh, a suburb in Suffolk County. And that is where the spiring, the original spiring of America formed by George Washington was formed by a bunch of kids in my hometown. And um, if you've seen the show AMC Turn, that's uh, that has historicalized that whole history. Um, and so there's a, there's a segment in there about these ships that were anchored in New York Harbor and also in Wallabout Bay off of um, Brooklyn Navy Yard area. And yeah, prisoners of war were held there and conditions were terrible and many people died. And so in Fort Greene, there is a, um, a monument to those that died um, and there are actual um, burials there. They were moved uh, from the Brooklyn Navy Yard area to the monument. And it's rarely opened, uh, so that's a fun secret, but on um, s sometimes for Open House in New York and other things, you can actually see the inside of that monument. Oh, I've been up there, but never seen the inside. That, by the way, was inaugurated, I think, by President Taft around 1910, uh -huh. 1911, something like that. But there was a little museum on the grounds, too, which I discovered the first for the first time about two years ago. It's like, like one of these old park buildings. There's a it seems like a little society, and there were flags and a couple. Ah, maybe there. I mean, members of the um, a group that is affiliated with that monument, uh, they I think they have access to that more frequently. The monument. Well, going back to, to the subway for a second, uh, the New York City Transit Museum is in is in Brooklyn Heights, or actually downtown yeah. technically. 
That's true. Um, on subway cars there. Yeah, we have um, entry by the Transit Museum. The lower level, which some people uh, miss or skip, has uh, vintage subway cars there. They range um, from the money train, the famous money train, to the Mets train, to um, very old IRT trains, etc. And um, and it's in a decommissioned subway station, so that makes it even cooler. So the trains actually can move in and out um, and it, and enter the the line. Uh, is that the same station that there's this secret uh, boarded up entrance in front of a brownstone into a subway station, or is that a different station? That's a different station. Uh, so that yes, on Jerome Lehman Street in Brooklyn Heights, there is uh, one townhouse in the stretch of townhouses that looks all like the others, except it has these very dark black windows. So if you look closely, you realize that something is not quite the same here. And it's actually a ventilation shaft for the subway system, um, and it's probably uh, connected to the Borough Hall um, subway lines. And it's built, and there's a brownstone on top of it. Yeah, so it probably was originally built as a brownstone and then was acquired by the city. Okay, probably in eminent domain. (laughs) There's a house of statues in Place of All Places in Bensonhurst. Yes, that's one of what? the new additions in our book. Oh, great. What, what is that about? I saw a picture of it, and I, <laughs> I thought I've never seen that before. And I used yeah. to have a family in Bensonhurst once upon Yeah, a time. it's colloquially known as the Bensonhurst Statue House. It's owned by um, a U.S. vet, and um, he loves to collect statues. Uh, Statues of superheroes and historical figures like Elvis and Marilyn. Um, and he's uh, outfitted his the whole front and driveway and roof of his house with these statues. So they're, they're um, uh, organized and staring out at you as you come by. And the driveway looks like the Holland Tunnel. Uh, and he's got like New York City signs and Brooklyn signs. Um, it's quite a, quite a great place. You know, mo- moving down to that part of Brooklyn, one thing that I was very pleasantly surprised to see in your book, I grew up in Manhattan Beach, which is the eastern end of Coney Island, and to a surprise to hear that there is actually a sideshow school in Coney Island that teaches people how to be sideshow uh, actors and actresses. Yeah. Um, so every year, I, I feel like my husband and I, for Valentine's Day, go on very bizarre New York experiences. And the year we had to get this book down, the sideshow school was having a performance. <laughs> And so that's what we did. Another year, we, we went to the um, water treatment facility in Newtown Creek. <laughs> so the sideshow great school, thing to do on, the, <laughs> I know. on Valentine's Day or an anniversary. It's kind of what we do. Uh, so the sideshow school um, that's where you can go to swallow swords and breathe fire and lie in a bed of nails and break in or step on glass. Uh, really like um, keeping this tradition alive there. Wow. I'll have to check it out sometime. Not that I want to lie in a bed of nails. But no, uh, yeah, I don't think there's that much audience participation. Oh. <laughs> I think well, the, the glass, actually, you can, but I, I obviously didn't go up there. Well, some people would say being in the real estate industry is almost like uh, <laughs> eating fire or, or lying on a bed of nails. Um, it's baseball season, and uh, the flagpole of Ebbets Field is somewhere, isn't it? Yes. Uh, it's currently in front of the Barclay Center, uh, right at the tip Um uh, and but it didn't always used to be there. Obviously, it was originally at Ebbets Field, and then it was moved to uh, a VFW post um, at some point. And when they were building Barclay Center, uh, Marty Markowitz knew it was there and said we should move it. Um, and so what's funny was that before Ebbets Field, um, before the Dodgers moved to California, or before New York lost the Dodgers. Uh, my mother and my aunts and uncles still uh, still bemoan. <laughs> um, 
the Dodgers wanted to move to uh, Atlantic Yards, where the Barclays Center is now. And Moses played, Robert Moses played hard to get and tried to get them to go to Flushing Meadows. And they said, no thanks, we're, we're going to California. And so in a way, the flagpole uh, moves back to where it might have been uh, had not that all happened. Oh, wow. Wow. Fascinating. Well, we're out of time. Michelle Young, uh, thank you. Author of Secret Brooklyn with her husband, Augustin Pasquet. Thank you so much for being on Rediscovering New York. Thank you so much. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on the mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. We're on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram at jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, a thanks to our sponsors, the Mark Myman team at Freedom Mortgage and the law offices of Thomas Siaka. And don't forget, when I'm not hosting this show, I'm a real estate agent at Halstead. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach me at 646-306-4761 or, of course, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is the amazing Sam Leibowitz. And our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for At Home with David Thiergartner coming up next at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc and at 9 p.m. Beyond Potential, Living Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc.
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 